We come to a wonderful, wonderful portion of God's Word, Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 4. If you can open your Bibles there, there should be uh, on the screen uh, the Scripture up there. There's an outline in your bulletin. By the way, all of the sermons, over a thousand of them, are now on sermonaudio.com, and you can go there and access them. Just type Flagstaff into the search engine and you'll see the church's name pop up and then you can track them down there as well as they're all on Bible.org and then on our church website as well. Paul writes, therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, shall appear, you also will appear with him in glory. Years ago, I came across a classic cartoon by Mary Chambers that I've never forgotten. It's there on the screen. Couple, two couples sitting around studying the Bible, and one woman says, Well, I haven't actually died to sin, but I did feel kind of faint once. And uh, whenever I read in the Bible, as in our text, that we have died with Christ, I think of that cartoon and chuckle because... I know, and you know, the Bible says that we have died to sin, but I also know that I don't feel dead to sin. Once in a while, like that lady, I may feel kind of faint, but that quickly goes away, and the temptations come, and I feel quite alive and well. And so I never feel dead to sin, and so the question is, well, what does that mean And how is it practical in my daily battle against sin? Now, last week we saw that keeping a bunch of man-made rules and, and denying yourself certain things that the Bible does not forbid is not the way to godliness. Paul hammers against these false teachers who were saying, just keep our rules and uh, you will be godly. And Paul says that's of no value against fleshly indulgence. And so the question then is, well, how then do I win against sin? And Paul answers that question in our text. He mentions again that we died with Christ. He adds the corresponding truth. We've been raised up with Christ, new life in him. And then he gives what sounds at first glance like very impractical advice. Notice again in verse 1, he, he says, Keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on earth. Now, I think we've all known people that we would describe as, Oh, he's so heavenly-minded, he's no earthly good. And yet, here Paul, somewhat contradicting that, says, you'll be more earthly good when you're more heavenly-minded. And so, to understand our text here, 
we need to view it in context. Now, as I mentioned in the previous context, Paul attacks these rules-based, it's called asceticism, where you think that by treating your body harshly, denying yourself certain legitimate pleasure, you'll somehow overcome the flesh. He attacks that in verse 23, and he says that's of no value against fleshly indulgence. Then, in the succeeding following context, um, verses 5 through 9, he goes on and tells us to put to death the members of our body which are on earth with regard to this long list of sins that characterized our old life. Then in verses 12 through 17, he talks about the Christian qualities that we are to put on, like a suit of new clothes, clean clothes, and practice. And then he goes on and applies those qualities to wives and husbands, to children and parents, to workers and employers. And uh, finally, he calls the church to prayer and witness in chapter 4 there before ending the book on a rather lengthy section of personal greetings. So our text is uh, the key then both to avoiding the sins of the flesh, that's the negative that we saw in the last chapter and we'll see next time, and also it is the key then to applying godly principles in the church in the home, in the workplace, and in the world. And so Paul is saying this, to win against sin, live in light of your new identity in Jesus Christ. Now, the first thing we need to establish is that as Christians, we all battle the sins of the flesh. And I state that because occasionally you'll meet some dear old saint who claims that they have attained total victory over sin. Uh, They have achieved the secret uh, of not I but Christ. They abide in Christ, and they will imply or even state to you, sin used to be a problem, but now it just glances off, you know? No problem at all. I am living in this state of sinless perfection. To disprove them, all you need to do is talk to somebody they live with. And you'll find out their claim is not valid. Uh, uh, But I hope that we all admit what the Bible very clearly says, that we fight against these deeds of the flesh. Now, the sins, I think, of the flesh are mainly what Paul has in mind when he says, don't set your mind on the things that are in, on the earth. In the Greek text, that phrase, the things that are on the earth, is repeated verbatim in verse 5 when Paul says we are to put to death our members that are on the earth. They're, they're both parallel. And I think in that short of a, a context, Paul intends for us to see, oh, that's what he means. And so he goes on in verse 5 and then down in verses uh, 8 and 9 to list many of the sins that we all struggle against. Immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed. And then he goes on to mention anger, wrath, malice, slander, abusive speech, and lying. And Paul would not tell us 
not to have our minds characterized by those sins if they were no problem. And while we can all put on a nice front and come to church and smile and shake hands and everybody thinks, my, what a wonderful Christian he is. As I said, the real test is at home and during the week. How do we live this out? And if we are practicing those sins, then we are not walking as Paul here is directing us to walk. And so what I'm saying is this, while through the new birth, there is a tremendous vital change that happens to us as believers, we are not rid of the flesh until we meet the Lord. And so we've got a battle on our hands of fighting these things, the old nature or the flesh. Galatians 5 talks about how they war against each other. And so we need to understand how to fight against these sins. So Paul here is showing us that to win this battle against sin, we need to understand our new identity in Jesus Christ. And these verses, 1 through 4, are Christ-centered. You'll notice that Paul mentions Christ four times in four verses. And there are two sides to our new identity with him. The first side is we died with him. We died with him. Back in uh, chapter 2 and verse 12, Paul says, We were buried with Christ in baptism. And then we saw it again in verse 20. If you have died with Christ to the elementary principles of the world, which, as I explained, I think refers to a rules-based approach to God. All world religions operate on this principle of keep the rules and you'll attain salvation. That's totally contrary to the message of God's grace. And so Paul wants us to understand that when we trusted in Jesus Christ, as he says again here in uh, verse 3, you died. When Christ died on the cross, you were there in him, and you died. And he develops that theme in other places, Romans 6, Romans 7, Galatians, and some other spots as well. Now, the problem with that truth, as that cartoon showed, is, frankly, I don't feel dead. My old man's alive and kicking, and it seems quite well, especially when temptation confronts me. And so there's this strong inner desire that we all have, maybe a different sin for different ones, but I want my way. And so we, we have that inner battle going on between the old and the new. So how does dying with Christ help me then to overcome that? Well, it seems to me, as I have wrestled with this over the years, the key is to understand death in the Bible never means cessation of existence, but it always means separation. When you die, you don't cease to exist. Your soul is separated from your body. Um, And so to be identified with Christ in his death means a separation has taken place between me and my flesh, my old evil nature. And so now, by being in Christ, I'm citizen of this new country in in heaven. And even though I still live on earth, I don't have to obey the old. 
I, I have a new set of um, free laws in Christ I can obey. And last week I used the illustration, you may recall if you were here, of a man who lives in a country where there's a 6 p.m. curfew and uh, he moves to the U.S., becomes a citizen here. Well, he's no longer under that old curfew. Now, when 6 o'clock comes around, he may think, oh, no, you know, I've got to be off the streets, but he doesn't. Why? Because he died to that old country. Now he's a citizen of a new country living under its jurisdiction, and so... Um, there is freedom in Christ for us to be under Christ's lordship, not under the, the old. Or let me use a different analogy. Um, if you've ever seen a car with its drive wheels off the ground, you can step on the gas and the wheels just spin like crazy, but the car doesn't go anywhere. Why? Because the wheels are separated from the pavement. And... Um, in Christ, that separation has happened so that when I'm tempted, my old nature may rev up and think, woo, you know, and start going, but I stop and realize, wait a minute, I don't have to go there. That power of the old man has been, there's a separation, a death that happened in Christ, and I'm now identified with Jesus in his death, and so I don't have to obey that. And the way that applies, Paul says in Romans 6.11 is, even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. That's the same truth he's presenting here. So in other words, it's not a matter of feeling dead to sin. It's a matter of the legal fact that a change has happened, a change of ownership or a change of citizenship. And so if we're joined to Christ by faith, we're one with Christ. We're no longer subject to the old master. Uh, to use another analogy, we're divorced from the old tyrant that used to dominate us, and now we're married to a new Lord, a new master who is loving and gracious to us, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so that's one side of this freedom we have from sin. The flip side is this, that we have been raised up with Christ then to the right hand of God. Now, this isn't the first time Paul has mentioned this truth either. Back in chapter 2, in verses 12 and 13, he wrote this, Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you also were raised up with him, through faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead. When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions. And so again, in verse 1 of chapter 3, Paul writes, Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Now, as I said last week, the word if doesn't imply any uncertainty. Uh, it's true, but Paul wants us to stop and consider the implications of it. If that's really true, then what is true of me? And so, like being united with Christ in the matter of his death, being united with him in his resurrection is not a matter of feeling, it's a matter of fact. 
It's what God says is true about us. And so when Jesus was raised from the dead through the uh, power of God, we were there being raised to new life in him if we're in Christ. Now, there are several implications of that. One of them I touched on, I think, back when we were in chapter 2, and that is that salvation is not a matter primarily of human decision or human willpower. Uh, It's rather a matter of God's mighty power imparting life to us when we were dead in our transgressions and sins. And so the point is salvation is not making a resolution, okay, I'm going to clean up my life. I'm going to change. I'm going to set these, these vows, that kind of human willpower. No, salvation is a matter of God imparting the resurrection life of Christ to us, which gives us the power over sin. Um, there's a little book by a Puritan named Henry Skugel called The Life of God in the Soul of Man. And that's the idea here. It means we're so united with Christ that, as Paul says in verse 4, he is now our life. He's our life. And so just as a branch draws its, its life from the vine, John 15, so we in Christ draw life from Christ and thereby are enabled to bear fruit for him. And so um, living in dependence then, on Christ is not a matter of, you know, sometimes we we view, well, God's on the shelf and he's there when I need him. Meanwhile, I get on with my own life and when I need God, I call on him. That's not the Christian life. That's idolatry, really. The Christian life is moment by moment dependence on the power, the indwelling power of Christ and his spirit in us. And it's a God thing. It's not human willpower. Also, being raised up with Christ means this. Whatever is true of Christ is now true of us. It's a remarkable truth. Whatever is true of Jesus Christ is true of us because we're in him. I could take a piece of paper and uh, stick it in my Bible, and now that paper's in my Bible. And so if I take my Bible home, the paper goes home. If I set my Bible on my desk, the paper's on my desk. Wherever my Bible goes, the paper goes because it's in the Bible. Well, we're in Christ. We're in Christ. And so everything true of Jesus Christ is true of us. Well, we've seen already in Colossians uh, chapter 2, verse 3, in him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom And knowledge. Do you need wisdom? Do you need knowledge? It's in Christ. Now, granted, it's going to take you a lifetime, in fact, an eternity, to mine out those treasures and see what they are and and apply them to your life. But in Christ, those are ours. In Christ, it says in Ephesians 2.7, we have the surpassing riches of God's grace in kindness toward us surpassing riches of God's grace and kindness toward us. In Christ, we saw in Colossians 2.10, you have been made complete. Um, He is now our all in all, as we'll see in chapter 3, verse 11. If we're in Christ, 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 and 4 says, we have everything we need for life and godliness. It's all in 
Christ. That's the point here. Now, Paul states here in verse uh, 1 the mind-boggling truth. And as far as I know, he only says this one other time in Ephesians 2.6, that in Christ we're actually seated with him in the heavenly places at the right hand of the Father. I, I can't get my mind around that, what that must mean. Someday we'll see it when we're with him in glory and we'll just, I think, melt in a pile. We are seated with Christ in the heavenly places in him. Now, what does that mean? Well, if you go through, and there are a number of places in the New Testament where that phrase seated at the right hand of God occur, and it comes, by the way, from Psalm 110, verse 1, which is the most quoted psalm in the New Testament. Um, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. And if you trace that through, you can kind of lump them all under three broad categories. First of all, it refers to Christ's supreme power. His supreme power. In Ephesians 1, 20 and 21, Paul prays that we might know what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe. He adds, these are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might, which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead, here it is, and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but in the one to come. Uh, You cannot get any more power than that power. That is supreme power in the entire universe in Christ. And, um, of course, as that psalm says, Jesus is still awaiting the time when his enemies will be made a footstool for his feet. But right now, Jesus said in Luke twenty-two sixty-nine, as he's bearing witness before the Sanhedrin, he said, after this, you'll see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of the power of God. And this is the staggering truth. If you believe in Jesus, you're there in him. You're there in him. It's amazing. Now, how does that apply to our battle against sin? Well, going back again to Romans chapter 6, verses 12 and 13, Paul says this, Therefore, because you're alive to God in Christ, is the verse right before, therefore don't let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lusts. And don't go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but... Present your members to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. So first of all, being seated at the right hand of God refers to Christ's supreme power. Secondly, it refers to Christ's sufficient pardon. Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 3 says this, And he, Christ, is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature, and he upholds all things by the word of his power. And when he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And what that means when he sat down there is, Christ had obtained complete 100% pardon for all of our sins. 
Hebrews chapter 10, verses 12 through 14 elaborates on that. It says, But he, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time onward until his enemies be made a footstool for his feet. Again, a reference to Psalm 110. For by one offering he perfect, has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. So we don't need to keep bringing offerings. Uh, Christ does not need to be sacrificed again weekly in the Mass. That's what they do. They think he needs to be sacrificed again and again and again. He does not. Once. He completed it all. And what that means is you can be assured in Christ God has forgiven all of your sins. Isn't that marvelous? All of your sins. And that way the enemy has no basis to accuse us. And it means that we're accepted in Jesus Christ. Accepted in Christ. The third thing that Christ seated at the right hand of the Father means, we're the objects now of Christ's sympathetic prayers. First, his, his power then his pardon, now his prayers. In the context of talking about our sufferings in Romans 8, 33 and 34, Paul says this, Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who's the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, and then he adds, who also intercedes for us. Some of us have been privileged before my mom and dad died. I know they were praying for me. It's a great thing to have godly parents praying for you or a godly friend praying for you, but let's be honest. They're only human and they can't pray 24-7. Just doesn't happen. But Jesus Christ, who has the fullness of deity dwelling in him, who is at the Father's right hand, is now interceding for you and for me in our weakness. What a wonderful, wonderful truth that is. Christ praying right now for you in whatever troubles, situations you're in, struggling with, Christ is there praying for you. And so when you battle uh, discouragement, remember you're in Christ. And you shared in his death and his resurrection, and you're now seated there in him, and though we can't hear him audibly, he's praying right now for you and for me. And he has all power. He has all pardon. He forgave all our sins. And now we have all of his prayers on our behalf. And so the, the point is you win against sin when you recognize your new identity in Christ. You're in him. You're no longer in the old. You're in the new. But still, you might wonder, well, how does that work? How does this work in practice? How do, how do we do this every day? Well, to win the battle against sin, constantly seek to understand and meditate on this new identity that you have in the risen Christ. And here are three things I want to point out. First of all, our new life in Christ, Paul says, is now hidden with Christ in God. 
Notice in verse 3, your life is hidden with Christ in God. Now, what does Paul mean by that? Well, first of all, I think he may be taking a swipe at the false teachers. These false teachers drew people into their, their net by saying, we have secret truth. We have hidden truth. Join us, learn our philosophy, and you will uh, get our secrets. And Paul is here taking a swipe at them, I think, saying, look, they don't have the secret. We have the secret. We have the hidden truth. And the fact is, you go out in the world and you look just like the world, I mean, outwardly. But you've got something the world doesn't know about. You're in Christ. You're in Christ. You're seated there in the heavenlies. And the world would look at you if you told them that and say, what? Are you wacko? They, they don't know this. They don't understand the things of God. But that's the truth about us. There is that hidden life in Christ. It also may point to the security of our life in Christ. Uh, in Psalm 31:20, for example, David says of people who take refuge in God, you hide them in the secret place of your presence from the conspiracies of man. You keep them secretly in a shelter from the strife of tongues. And it means if we're in Christ, there's a shelter there. There's a security there, a refuge there where we're protected and kept safe. A third implication of that truth, that our life is now hidden with Christ in God, is it needs to be sought out. It needs to be mined like a hidden treasure. Um, in other words, these truths that God declares about us may not be immediately obvious. They're not all easy to grasp. In fact, the ones I'm speaking on are not necessarily easy to grasp. And so it means that daily you've got to go before the Lord and open his word and say, Lord, would you reveal the treasures you have for me in your word today? And you, you mine that out day by day by day and begin to assimilate that into your thinking and into your daily life. And as you take the time to dig out these treasures in God's word, as, as Psalm 19 says, they, they become like gold, more precious than gold and silver to you in your life. Now, how do we find those treasures? Well, the second thing here is we seek these things above by making them the continual pursuit of our thinking. You notice there are two commands in our text. The first one, keep seeking the things above. And the second one, set your minds on the things above. And they're both present imperatives in the Greek text, which in or refer to a continual process. This isn't something you do and you're done with it. And what it means is you make these truths above the constant pursuit of your thinking, uh, your focus, your aim. Just worldly people get up in the morning. What are they focused on? Oh, I got to get to work. I got to close that deal. I've got to make more money. I've got to invest, right? I've, it's all the things of this world. Now, Paul isn't implying that we go out of the world and sit around and just meditate on heavenly things all day. The Bible is very aware of and even commending of the fact that we all have to live in the world, we have to work for a living, raise a family, all, all of the nuts and bolts of daily living. But what it's saying here is 
Remember Jesus in John 6? He said, don't work for the food which perishes, but work for the food that endures to eternal life. Or as we read at the start of the service, seek uh, his kingdom. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. And all these other things that the world is scrambling for, they'll be added unto you. So it's a a priority in our lives that uh, we should begin each day focusing our minds on the Lord. That's why it's so important. Even if it's 15 minutes, get up 15 minutes early and meet with the Lord. Open your Bible. Have a stack of verses you're working on to memorize. Spend a few minutes in prayer. And, and you get your focus. I'm separate from this evil world. I'm dead to sin. I'm alive to God in Christ. All right, Lord, would you direct my day? And it's that perspective so that as you go about your day, then you begin in a spare moment to think about Christ is now my life. And uh, he lives in and through me. And throughout the day, your thoughts keep coming back to these things that are true of you in Jesus Christ, these things above. Now, when Paul says, set your mind on the things above, that's a good translation. And what it's telling us is, this involves your thinking. In other words, you can direct your thinking to these spiritual truths that are true of you in Christ. It means have your whole attitude characterized by these things above. And the present tense, as I said, means it's a repeated deal where you make the truths uh, in Christ, uh, in your thinking, you focus on them. And it determines eventually your whole outlook where you view yourself. I'm not a citizen of this world. I don't uh, embrace the values of this world. I am now raised up with Christ. Soon I will be with him in glory And I want to live my life in light of those eternal truths, that I died, I'm raised up with Christ, I'm identified with him, he is my very life. As I said a few minutes ago, the things, everything true about Christ is now true of you. And here's the deal. The truest thing about you is not what you feel. The truest thing about you is what God says is true about you. Let me say that again. That's important. The truest thing about you is not what you feel. The truest thing about you is what God says is true about you. For example, this morning you may have walked in the door feeling very defeated in your Christian life. God says we're more than conquerors in Christ. You may have walked in the door and you feel rejected, like nobody cares about you. The Bible says we're accepted In Jesus Christ. You may feel unloved. The Bible says God loves you with an everlasting love in Christ. And I could go on and on and on and on with all of this. And the point is, as Christians, we're not to live by our feelings. We're to live by faith in the fact of God's word. And what he says is true about us. And so what Paul is saying here is daily we've got to focus our thoughts on these things above, where Christ is and where you are in Christ, seated at the right hand of God. And you say, well, what am I supposed to deny my feelings? No, but as you change your thinking, your feelings will change. 
as you begin to walk by faith in Christ, setting your mind on these things. Remember the little fact, faith, feeling thing in the Campus Crusade 4 Law booklet? The fact is God's word. That's the engine of the train. And the coal car is faith in that. And then the caboose is the feelings. And that's really a valid illustration. As you begin to live daily by faith in God's word, believing these things above, your feelings will follow. And so moment by moment, Paul is saying, just think to yourself, I am in Christ. I am a new creature in Christ. I'm dead to sin, raised up to new life in Christ. And as you do that, it becomes a key to a holy life. It's how you win against sin. Um, One final thought. This is the motivation for doing this. The motivation for seeking the things above, Paul says, is that when Christ is revealed, we also will be revealed with him in glory. That's verse 4. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. That is just a staggering thought. That is really amazing. It means when Jesus Christ returns, we will discover what he has made us when we got saved. See, right now, we see through a glass darkly, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13. But then we will know fully just as we have been fully known. We don't know uh, all, all that's going to come. I love 1 John chapter 3, verses 2 and 3. John puts it this way. Beloved, now we are children of God. Okay, we know that much. Now we're children of God, but then he adds, it's not yet appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him just as he is. So that vision of Christ when he returns is going to transform us instantly into his likeness. And then John adds this, and this relates to our theme today. How do you live a holy life? John adds, everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. See, there's the motivation to holiness, knowing that one day Jesus is going to come back and I'm going to be revealed with him in glory That enables me to say, nah, sin, I don't want it, thanks. I'm in Christ. I'm a new creature in Christ. That's the key to winning against sin. Many years ago, there was a plastic surgeon. And as he operated on people, he began to notice some interesting things. For some people, as soon as he fixed their faces, they were changed in their personality. People that maybe had a deformity before and he operated on them, it changed their whole outlook. They became confident, outgoing, whereas before they didn't even want to be around people because they were so self-conscious of their disfigurement. But then he noticed a strange thing. There were others, and even though the surgery was successful, it made no difference. After the surgery... The doctor would show them the before and after photographs, and they would insist, sometimes angrily, I am no different than I was. Surgery failed. And he was baffled by this. But because they refused to believe the truth, the new truth about their transformed faces, 
They went on living just as they had before the surgery, even though the surgery, in fact, had changed them. So they didn't experience their new life because they didn't believe it. Now, we've, as Christians, gotten much more than a facelift. Paul says, we've died to our old life. And we have a brand new life in Christ, raised up with him, seated with him now in the heavenly places in Christ, so that all that is true of Christ is now true of us. And so now, Paul says, we need to keep seeking those things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. We need to daily set our minds on those things above, not on the old life. Not on the old life. We'll look at that next time. But on the new life, where our true life, Paul says, is hidden with Christ in God. And the point is, as we live in light of our new identity in Christ, we'll win the battle against sin. Let's pray. Dear Father, these are um, hard things to work into our daily practice. And so I pray that by your spirit and your grace, you would help all of my brothers and sisters and help me to apply this wonderful, wonderful text in our daily battle against sin. I pray, Father, if any are here who have never died with Christ and been raised with him to new life. In other words, they've never been born again. That by your grace, you would invade their life and that you would open their blind eyes to see that they might trust in Jesus Christ alone for eternal salvation. And then, Lord, as your saints, we battle the flesh every day. Some of my brothers and sisters sitting here this morning, I'm sure, are fighting a losing battle. I I pray you would give us victory in Christ so that our lives would bring honor and glory to your name, that we would live as citizens of a new kingdom, that we would live in our union with Christ, not in the old way of life, so that our lives would bring you glory and that others would come to know you through us. I ask in Jesus' name, amen.